Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Are you in the market for some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the promo code other people, O T H E R P P L, O T H E R P P L. When you do that, you get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked Audio. These are earbuds, these are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, everybody, here we go again. This <laughs> right. is it. This is Other People. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. Welcome to the Other People Show, the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. How are you? You good? Everything okay? My guest today is Margaret Wappler. Her debut novel, Neon Green, out there now, available from the unnamed press. Margaret Wappler and I will be in conversation momentarily. Uh, Margaret was the final person to record the final guest in the old uh, filthy garage. So this conversation was recorded many weeks ago. It, uh, it happened at the tail end of the big flurry of uh, recording that I did before the move. And uh, all of this is a way of saying that what you're about to hear, I cannot be held responsible for. <laughs> I was in an altered state is what I'm telling you. Uh, born of fatigue. But Margaret uh, was sharp as a tack and could not have been nicer. She was a terrific guest. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her. Her debut novel, Neon Green, uh, is terrific. So uh, that said, uh, I also want to get to some mail. I am remiss in not having responded to a uh, bevy of letters from uh, listeners that I've been receiving over the summer. I appreciate the mail. I appreciate hearing from uh, you guys. And I thought that I would read a few of these letters on the air right now. Uh, so why don't I do that? The first one comes from a listener named Jamie who writes, hi, Brad. Uh, I'm a big fan of your podcast, but the Stephen Elliott episode, did I miss the part where you asked him about Claire Vey Watkins's essay entitled on pandering? He even referred to it obliquely and mischaracterized what she said. I'm almost sure you know what I'm talking about. So why not get his response? I like your show a lot, but in this case, the omission felt a little bit like complicity. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me you're not going all lit bro on me. Signed, Jamie. 
I don't think I'm going lit, bro. You know, this is just an oversight uh, that happened. And I just forgot. I should have asked Stephen about it. I remember the essay. I read it. I was on Twitter. I clicked the link. I read it. I thought to myself, oh, that's not great. And then I seem to recall reading uh, Stephen Elliott tweeting about it that same day where he apologized. You know, it's like I don't want to excuse bad behavior or uh, try to sound like I have mastery over this because I really don't. I'd have to reread the essay. Uh, But it's hard to litigate all this stuff, and it's hard to keep track of it all, frankly. There's so much of it out there. And, uh, you know... I don't know. I enjoyed my conversation with Steven. I feel as the host of the show that I should have asked him about it. I think it's a good point. I would have been interested to hear his thoughts. So I apologize, but it was simply an oversight. It was not a complicity. I'm not a lit bro, man. The next letter comes from a listener named Kara who writes, Hi, Brad. I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed the episode with Sloan Crosley, which I listened to while painting my bathroom. I wanted to tell you that my husband read parts of Sloan's first book aloud to me when we first finished graduate school. We had just moved across the country from North Carolina to Colorado and didn't know anyone. We spent a lot of time cooking and reading and walking the dog and renting movies from the public library. This is sounding sad and weird, but it was sort of sweet and great. I loved how Sloan basically gave you a mini therapy session about how all people are misfits in their own way. Everyone has insecurity, she said. You just don't recognize other people's because they are often so different from your own. It struck me as such a real human moment without tipping into anything cloying or, I don't know, pat. That's all. Thanks for the episode. Signed, Kara. So, uh, Kara, thank you. I I don't have much to add here other than I think the idea of uh, you and your husband renting movies at the public library sounds very romantic. And I really enjoyed talking with Sloan. She was a lot of fun. It's an easy guest, easy person to talk to. Patrick from Limerick, Ireland, longtime listener Patrick over there in Limerick, Ireland says, Hello, Brad, was really enjoying the Chuck Klosterman episode until you asked him about religion. And he said he didn't want to talk about that. Did I miss something? Susan Sontag said a writer is someone who is interested in everything. How can a man so open to questioning everything else about culture and society not want to talk about something as important as religion? I was really taken aback by that. It's a question you always casually ask your guests, and it is, to me, the fundamental question. All the best, Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, I, was, uh, I, I remember that moment. It was like at the tail end of the interview... You know, Chuck and I have been having this great conversation and we got into religion and for a while it was fine. And then suddenly he kind of pulled the plug on it. And, uh, you know, I don't quite know why I didn't want to press him on it. I feel like when somebody does that, I need to sort of respect boundaries. Uh, I will say that it struck me a little funny and I wonder about it now that you mention it. Um, you know, Chuck has a really good brain and, uh, he's a great thinker, you know, he's just kind of a, a one of our better uh, cultural critics and public thinkers about so many different things. But, uh, you know, I think that that can exist in tandem with a desire to have certain boundaries about family or about matters that are deeply personal, uh, which can include uh, spiritual stuff and religious stuff. So I don't know exactly what the, uh, 
what the rationale is there, but you got to kind of respect it, I think. I mean, that was my feeling on it anyway. And, uh, yeah. So thanks for writing, Patrick, and thanks for listening. I appreciate it. The next letter, uh, I think this is the final letter I'll read, is from a listener named John. He says, Hi, Brad, I feel like you've overcome the few negative things I felt about you. It started with your interview of Viet Thanh Nguyen. When I saw that, I said to myself, Oh, no, Brad's going to get all nervous and low self-esteem-ish because he's interviewing a Pulitzer winner. Wrong. Then Mike Edison came up. Great. An hour of drug talk. Wrong again. I enjoyed it very much. But then you had Jonathan Franzen. I thought for sure that this would bring out the worst in you. Heck, you might, have, you might as well have been interviewing the Pope or Obama. But I was wrong again. Knocked it out of the park. I'm so glad to be wrong. Signed, John. So, <laughs> I'm glad. You know, it's interesting because I know what you're talking about, uh, John. When I interview uh, bigger authors, one of the things, one of, you know, part of my learning curve as the host of this show has been uh, trying to handle that part of myself, the low self-esteem-ish part, the I'm not worthy part, the what am I doing talking to you, <laughs> which I can feel, uh, it depends on which day, you know, most of the time I'm fine. Every once in a while I'm not, and it just depends on the, you know, sometimes it's the guest, sometimes it's the day, but I feel like I'm getting better at just not giving a fuck and just talking to the person, which is what I'm supposed to do. And the other thing is the, uh, the guests themselves. You know, some guests are uh, easier to talk with than others. Most of the guests I, I find have, you know, are, are very easy to talk with, but every once in a while there's a, a nut that's a little bit harder to crack. So that can have an impact. I'm glad that I've overcome, uh, the negative things that you felt about me. <laughs> Uh, all right, guys, if you want to email me, the address is letters at other PPL.com letters at other PPL.com. I'll try to, uh, be quicker on the draw in terms of responding. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Margaret Wappler. Her debut novel is called Neon Green, available now from the unnamed press. Here she is, folks. This is Margaret Wappler, and her novel, one more time, is called Neon Green. I spent about five, six years writing it. Um, 
I had a full-time job at the LA Times for most of the years that I was writing it. So I was uh, working on it in the mornings and in the evenings, like all around. What was your beat at the job. LA Times? Mainly music, but I also wrote about film and books and TV. That's cool. Yeah, it was yeah. great. And then you would, I mean, and you would get up like at the crack of dawn and work on this thing. Yeah. Do you work with an outline? I take notes. I don't really use like an a good outline. like a good reporter would. <laughs> exactly. If I didn't, if I if I have an idea, I'll write down what I think I need to know to remember it. But I don't like to have things too planned out, or else I find that I get bored. Like I already know what it, what's going to happen, and then I just feel like, well, why write it then? It's too restrictive. But you know, it's like uh, I always, whenever I talk to people on this program who have worked as journalists, uh, I always feel like there's. There's something to be said about the discipline that's sort of built into the work of journalism. It lends itself well to getting into a writing routine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I know how to just sit down and write something and not get too precious about it right. and make sure that it happens. And I was already getting up at 5, 6 in the morning anyway, half the time for various work deadlines. So it just fit that way. And then I'd also um, meet a good friend of mine, Jade Chang, who has a debut novel coming out herself later this year um we got together in the evenings and we'd write and that was another way to lock in the habit your book came out first yeah only by a few months so you won <laughs> well it's like a tie you know yeah yeah was there any kind of comp like friendly competition to it were you guys pushing each other i think we were definitely pushing each other in the sense that um you know, when you have a writing partner, you're accountable to that person. Right. Like if you're the person who flakes that night on meeting, you don't feel good about it. Um, so I think, you know, in that, in that sense, we were competitive. I think as far as like what we were writing about, like, no, I mean, we, we had our own ideas and we were both really supportive of the other project. Are you uh, an inherently disciplined type A person or is this something that you had to really work to become? Mm, I would, I think I had to work to become that way. Um, because I spent my entire 20s, for instance, like beating myself up for not being that way. Um, I kept trying to, and I went to a writing program at Columbia College, and I wrote a lot while I was there, but I still couldn't really get uh, a novel done. And I remember, I mean, now this seems incredibly precious and ridiculous, but I remember being depressed on my 25th birthday because I was like, I don't have a novel out yet. <laughs> And here I am, 40, and my first novel's coming out. Well, but I mean, you know, it's just different. There's different timelines for everybody. Yeah. In and the end, you can't really, like, you can't question it. This is just the time that it happened. Yeah, this is what you needed to do. It's like you, Whatever you went through is what needed to happen in order to get this thing done. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you work uh, at the LA Times and you're in that environment, do most of the beat reporters at the paper have a book in the drawer? That is a good question. I feel like if they do, a lot of them keep quiet about it. I think in some ways there can be um, a kind of cliche. You feel like a cliche if you're the reporter who's been working on a book for years and years and years and you just haven't like done it yet. Right. Yeah. yeah but It's hard with a day job. It's hard with a day job, and I feel it's like... It's hard I, without a day job. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, period. But I had a lot of um, reporters, you know, come up to me, fellow reporters, saying, like, you know, I wish I could write a book, or I really want to write a book. Um, but they just didn't get around to it yet. Well, it's hard. I mean, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's subjecting yourself to uh, lack of sleep. Yeah. You're going to sleep less. It's subjecting yourself to all of the uh, grinding... Uh, hard work and uncertainty 
Yeah. It's a big ask of oneself. It really is. You I have, mean, what, like what drives you? Like, what do you think when you, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, you know, what separates you from the person who uh, might have that aspiration, but never gets around to it? Why did you get around to it? I guess I felt like I had something to say or that I'm not happy existing in this world without writing my experience down. Um, and it's not to say that I'm purely translating what has happened to me into books. Um, there's obviously some kind of process that goes on where like the things that have happened to me and the things that I've experienced get put through the fiction machine. Um, but I just feel compelled to tell stories in that way. Like I just, I just have to, I have to make things up. I mean, this was the other aspect of being a journalist and working on a book is that I was like constantly in the reality fact-based world and my job. Um, and I wanted to be in this fantastical world in my off hours, like a world that I was in complete control of and didn't have to obey any laws at all, except right. the ones I made up. Right. Like no inverted pyramid, <laughs> no, whatever. What are the journalistic rules? You know? Well, you mean no nut graph. Do you know what a nut graph is? No. Yeah. It's like the paragraph that's maybe first or second or third that tells you all you need to know about a story okay and then you can skim the rest basically did you get anything though from the journalistic writing like do you did you i mean it seems like it was impossible for it not to have some impact on your style or on how you approach a story yeah well i do think i mean and plenty of journalists have said this before me but i do think you learn to respect uh the simplicity of it, like crafting a story and telling it in the most simple, direct way that you can. Um, even when you're dealing with highly imaginative or conceptual ideas, um, you still find a way to deliver that in a very simple, direct, clear manner that I do think is is borrowed or informed by journalism for me. Yeah, yeah. And so um, the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> because we talk about having something to say. Your book takes place in the '90s, uh, like on the cusp of the internet age. Yeah, Th was this at the center of what you thought you had to say? Was there something about um, our life and uh, the, the digitalization of our life? Well, I do feel like people of our generation are, um, and we are contemporaries, by the way. Yes, born just months apart, in that 1975. Is right. 1975. Here, we can yeah. do a little fist bump. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, we're we live in this interesting period in that we saw the sort of ship turn around. You know what I mean? Like we were in uh, a completely non-internet time. You yeah, know? my analog childhood, as yeah. I like to refer to it. Yes, my analog childhood, and um, and then it became completely digital, and that's that's taken over everything I do. Basically, I mean, I'm I'm shocked sometimes when I think about how much of my life is led or lived online, uh, and my friendship connections are stabilized online and um, work that I do is online. And, and like, I just wanted to go back to this time where none of that existed because I also feel like there's a certain kind of mystery that I wanted neon green to have. And I couldn't have that mystery with the internet involved. Um, Why not? Uh, you know, I just feel like it, the internet sort of spoils things sometimes that way. Like it's almost too easy to look something up and know everything about it. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted the characters to be, um, having to rely on secondhand inform information. I mean, even though secret three-way calling where like you sit in and listen on a call, I <laughs> <laughs> was big in my junior high. Or oh whatever. yeah. Like the call waiting, yeah. like signal and that could, when that would go off in your ear, it's like, I got to get that call. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so you grew up in the Midwest? Yeah. But you, but you were born in Los Angeles. Yeah, so I was born in Upland, California, and my family lived here um, for the first five years of my life. And then we moved to Alabama, like a really rural town called Marion. My dad was an Episcopalian minister, and he taught at the School of Theology in Claremont out here. And then he shifted and um, became a rector of a church in uh, Marion. And then we moved up to Oak Park, Illinois, when I was about nine or ten and so that's where that and you spent the rest of your childhood there yeah that's basically yeah that's where i say i'm from okay yeah how was that uh, ernest hemingway's childhood home too right yes exactly um oak park the suburb that i grew up in at the time when i was in you know high school there i thought oh, i can't wait to get out i thought it was like super lame and i was tired of it now when i go back there i think it's a really amazing place to have grown up like it's um it's beautiful there's frank lloyd wright homes everywhere it's really diverse. It's um, liberal. Like, there's a lot of things about it that I really love. You can and, take the train into the city? Yeah, you can take the train into the city. Yeah. And that was a major escape hatch when I was in high school. Like, you just jump on the train and you go You did that? Mm-hmm. Like, Ferris Bueller? Just... <laughs> yeah, except I, didn't, I never took, like, a, anybody's dad's, like, Ferrari or well, something like that. you know, we're splitting hairs. Yeah. But you could do that. See, that's a, that, to me, is a nice option to have as an adolescent is to be able to just get on public transportation and have access to like a major metropolis. Yeah, it was such a treat. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Milwaukee and Indianapolis. Oh, okay, so you're Midwestern too. Yeah. yeah. Not only were we born, we, we lived just mere hours apart. What's going on here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so as a kid, uh, was it a really, I mean, it was a really religious household? Well, Episcopalians are different. You know, it's not exactly like evangelical. Uh, community there. And your dad was like an academic. Yes, exactly. He was much more in in an academic field um, than, I mean, he was a minister. Uh, He had a congregation, but it, I, you know, he was, he was a PhD and he wrote about T.S. Eliot and, you know, he was just, it wasn't, it wasn't this kind of thing where we were like forced to pray five times a day. I mean, if anything, Jesus was presented to me more as a figure you could talk to, that you could confide in, and he would be there and listen and protect you. Good guy. Yeah, good guy, exactly. <laughs> like, what? if he, you know, if this was the X-Men, he'd be like, yeah. never mind. I don't but it know was a supernatural, well a supernatural say. figure. Like, he, uh, he was listening. He was listening, and he's listening to everybody. Yeah. But that wasn't presented to me as a bad thing. Like a judgment. Right. So that's how it was presented to me. It was like sort of like the overlord type thing, like uh, watching you if you're bad, you know, that, mm, that thing. You didn't have that. No, I feel like Santa Claus was like scarier to me in some <laughs> ways. <laughs> um, so very little guilt and shame. This, hmm. is, this is where our paths diverge, perhaps, because I was nothing but guilt and shame. Well, I would say there was guilt and shame, but more because my parents are sort of like classic wasps, you know what I mean? And okay. I feel like that... You know, there was like, if you had too much of an emotional outburst, that was like not acceptable. Right. Um, but it wasn't so much shame around like you've done something wrong and, and Jesus has seen you do it. It was more just like, um, be Christ-like in your behavior at all times. Never. No never, pressure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just never be like explode. Jesus. Yes. <laughs> be a completely at peace at all times. Um, so do you still practice? Do you still go to church? Is it still part of your life? Not at all. I mean, I occasionally will go to church, um, very occasionally, almost more for like a hit of nostalgia than anything. Um, 
I do at this point have a lot more respect for religion than I used to. I think when I was in high school and college, I was really angry at it. I really thought it was... See, now we're coming back together. Yeah. (laughs) I really (laughs) thought it was just like a mind trap. Like, why would anyone ever believe in any of this crap? Right. And I, you know, but that's hard to feel about, you know, my own father. Like, I respect him. I mean, he's no longer, you know, he passed away when I was 15, um, and that was part of why I was angry because I didn't understand why. What happened? I mean, he had a rare brain tumor, Ugh. and it took him I don't know, about like four or five years to get chemo and surgeries and all this kind of thing, and it just none of it worked. He died, Ugh. and I didn't understand why someone how, how someone could devote their life to this and still be taken so soon and so young. He was fifty-seven. Oh man, um, you know, and I was. 15 his youngest child so it, it just felt like this isn't fair why why believe in this if it's not going to protect yeah, me? why do why do bad things happen to good people yeah it's like a very fundamental question as a kid that i found myself asking yeah and it feels like uh i mean obviously you get older and you realize that just there's huge amounts of injustice and unfairness everywhere in the world but at the, when you're that age it just feels like why why yeah. me why me well they I, yeah i mean it's like everyone that the old saying everyone's fighting a hard battle Mm-hmm. Everyone. Yeah, you may not be able to see it, but it's there. Yeah, well, and some, but the, but then at the same time, some people more than others. Yeah. Some, some people get dealt a really shitty hand in life. It's so true. Like spectacularly. And then, you know, this is one of those things I'll take myself through because I'll be feeling sorry for myself. I'll be you know, worried about my lot in life. And then I'll say to myself, uh, not inaccurately, like, I think I probably have an easier life than like 90, a good 97% of the world, if yeah. not more. Yeah. And I'm still struggling. I know. I mean, it's like, like... What does that say about me? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, it's like we can't really ever appreciate our lot. You know what I mean? We're just trapped in our own experience. And then you have to break out and think, well, what if I was like, I don't know, a Sudanese like refugee? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like these obviously, people, things can get much, much worse. These people in Syria, like trapped in these horrible like war zones, like that kind of life and um, no access to medicine, no access to decent food yeah um you know it's like there's a way to reframe it that i've been trying to do lately like um not to sound too hokey but it's like you know just to try to appreciate your life uh and to you know just to have like a basic appreciation uh i can see knock on wood i'm gonna knock on wood for everything okay Uh, i can see i have access to nature i can walk Mm -hmm. i'm not in pain right now i don't have a a tumor you know like all these things like you start to just like take inventory of them and it, it actually does make me feel better. Mm. I, I suddenly go, oh, my God. Like, you start to feel a little bit happy. Um, <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. But it's, it's easy to forget. Yeah. And, you know, it's very easy for me to fall into uh, cynicism and, and to want to mock uh, when people start talking about gratitude. Like, you know, because that can get very hokey very quickly. But that's sort of the case. Right? Yeah. You, sort of something that you need to do to have a healthy outlook i don't know i I almost think that having gratitude or you know the idea that you can visualize something and that will help it come true is more just for your personal health and appreciation of life than anything else do you know what i mean better than the alternative right exactly i mean you know it's like i'm either going to be grateful that i have eyes that work and try to feel good about that or i'm going to be like you know, bitter about any number of like injustices or whatever, you know, crap has befallen me in my life. Right. Which, I mean, which is the same more or less for everybody. Yeah. 
mean, we're, we're, we're incredibly lucky. We're like white Americans sitting yeah. here in this nice garage. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I'm so grateful for this space. But I am in a way, and we can say whatever we want. It's true. We, without recourse. I mean, mostly without recourse. Like, we have freedom of expression. Imagine living in one of these societies where, like, you can be uh, sent to a rock quarry just for, like, you know, saying the wrong thing. I can't imagine it. Yeah. So, I don't know why I got off on that tangent. But it, <laughs> it's like trying to uh, frame life in a way that makes me functional and, like, more healthy. Yeah. It's important. And less of an asshole. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the real key. Um, so, to lose a parent at 15... Uh, t I mean, it's really tough. I imagine it probably made you turn inward and had something to do with the fact that you became literary or was that there before? Well, I think I was definitely a reader and a writer in the sense that my mother is a librarian. No. Two of my brothers are librarians. Jesus. Yeah. It's, it's in the family. It's in the blood. So as is Jesus. <laughs> so, I mean, my mom would read to me every night and I had all kinds of books and I wrote my name in those books and I was very attached to them as objects. And I think by the time I was 15, um, I did feel extremely isolated by losing a parent at that age. I mean, 15 is hard for everyone. I mean, you're in a very weird adolescent state where you're not even like at the 17, 18 year old part of it where you're a little more in control of yourself. You're right. just in the beginning slash middle and you are completely confused and feel awkward and horrible all the time. And I lost my dad and, and even though I went to a really big high school, you know, this high school is probably like 3000 students or something like that. I barely knew anyone who lost a parent. Yeah. And the, it's isolating. Yeah. And the couple kids that I did know, I, I didn't know them well enough to go up to them and talk to them about it. Well, and see, this is the thing. Like you go through something like that, I imagine. And it makes people uh, uncomfortable or scared, especially, yeah. especially teenagers, but really everyone, mm -hmm. you know, loss, death freaks people out yeah. and they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't know how to approach you. They don't know even how to say, I'm sorry for your loss. And it becomes that that's isolating. Yeah. I mean, kids, especially at that age have absolutely no script for it. They don't, you know, as an adult, we at least know to say, you know, if, if it was a coworker who lost, um, a parent, you'd say, I'm sorry for your loss or something like that. You'll but... like heart their Instagram post or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, something very significant of that nature. Yes. Um, and I think kids just, they, you know, you would say, I would, I remember saying like, well, actually my dad died and there would be just silence and then, oh, and then like, you know, let's go ahead and listen to this Jane's Addiction CD. You know what I mean? Like it was just not, nobody could, nobody knew how to function with that information. Did it ever get better? I mean, like in high school, did you find any friends that you could talk to about it? Or was it pretty much just you and your family? During high school, I didn't talk to any of my friends about it. I mean, I, I remember one night, the guy that I, I, get, I think he was my boyfriend at the time. We were good friends all throughout high school. Um, but I remember one night breaking down in front of him. And it was one night I allowed myself to do that with my friends. I just didn't feel like I could. Was it just him or was it a group of friends? No, it was just him. Just him. Were yeah. You, were you drunk? Yeah. Okay. How'd you know? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drunk right now. I'm, right. About, I'm about to break down, tell you everything. <laughs> Please do. But yeah. Um, well, that's sweet and heartbreaking. Yeah. But, I mean, but seems normal. Right. And then by the time I got into college, um, I did. I did tell more people. Yeah. And then it became really a part of like, if, if I became good friends with somebody, I was going to tell them that story. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, time, like it's, it's, it's never, it's like, you know, losing people that you care about is never something that's ever fully rectified, obviously. But like 
time really is the thing. I mm-hmm. mean, if anything's going to make you more functional uh, or more able to cope, it's just that. Yeah. I, it's interesting, though, with a loss of that nature. I, I think in a way you, you'd never really get over it. No, no. I'm not saying that you would. I'm just yeah. saying that, like, just... I don't know. Just like I, I feel like the initial initially, it's it's really bad. Obviously, and I'm speaking only from the experience of having lost friends, you know, close friends, never a parent. Um, and so, knock on wood. And so, um, but I mean, I do find with time, it, it somehow gets a little easier. Yeah. I, I don't know. No, do it you does. Go, do you go to therapy for it or anything? Oh yeah. You in did. my in my early twenties, I found this amazing psychiatrist in Chicago. I had no money. But I was really getting depressed, and I knew that it was because I never dealt with any of that. Mm. And I called this guy out of the phone book. I knew nothing about him. I told him my situation. I I came in. He practiced out of his home, and he gave me three free therapy for probably like four or five years. Wow! I know. What I mean, a it was. Guy. I know it was like he was kind of a guardian angel. Like I really felt like I wouldn't have been okay if I hadn't found this guy in the phone book. First person I called. What a human. I know. That's I an... still keep in touch with him. I write him a letter every now and again. Wow. What's his name? <laughs> <laughs> Did you slide me his number? Um, wow. And so d- did uh, did the writing of this book and going back to, what, the mid-90s? Mm-hmm. This is the time period uh, right around when all this was happening, right? Pretty much. I mean, I lost my dad in 91. So it was a little bit before. Uh, the book is set in 94, 95. Okay. Yeah, but close enough, yeah. Yeah, that time period. It's a very, I mean, that's right when I was uh, just out of high school. It's, I, I, you know, it's very easy to idealize one's youth. Wait, you were out of high school? Right, you were out of high school in 94. 93. Okay. I graduated, uh-huh. yeah. Okay. So it's just, uh, I don't know, I guess everybody sort of has, it feels very vivid to me in a weird way. And it yeah. also, there's also, I have a, a real sense of nostalgia for it. Um, not only in the normal cultural ways, but precisely for the reasons that we we, we alluded to earlier with regard to it being analog. Mm-hmm. There's something sort of like sweet and innocent about that to me. Like I kind of miss it in a weird way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I miss, I even miss the beginning of the internet period though. <laughs> like that noise. Dial up. <laughs> the dial up noise where it would be like, it was like those old car alarms where it would go through like five different sequences. Do yeah. you remember that like sound? Like I I can't. I can't in, in, imitate it. You'll have to get it and like plug it into this part. I think the dude from Police Academy could probably do right. it. Remember him? <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's something that probably people of our generation would remember. Every, oh, yeah. All the millennials are like, what? I know. But my friend went to high school with that guy. Just saying. Is Claim it, to fame. I want to say his name's Michael Winslow, which might make me... I believe you. Yeah. Um, okay. So just to go back and keep tracing, where did you go to college? Columbia College, Chicago for okay. my undergrad. And then I moved out here and went to CalArts for oh. graduate school. Okay. And you're seeing this therapist? Yeah, in Chicago. Um, do you come to terms? Like, do you have, did you have any come to terms with death in any way or like what happens to us? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining that's part of I me. Mean, part of loss is like, well, what happens? Is that it? Like, did you have those kinds of existential crises or was it different? Hmm. I shift my mind all the time on what I think happens after we die. I mean, I think at that age, like in high school when it happened, um, I did have this experience where I really like felt like the night before my dad died, I kind of felt his presence like with me in a really profound way. And the next morning when I woke up and my mom knocked on the door, it's like I knew before I even answered the door what she was going to say. And I always thought about that and I thought, yeah, he was saying goodbye. 
um, and and that he was still kind of like with us or with me, like somehow in the ether. Um, but then, I mean, I you know, I still like heaven. I, heaven feels very um, kind of uh, constructed. Yeah, yeah, constructed, and um, and to and I feel like whatever happens after we die is like way more amorphous than that. Like there's just no kind of there's no place there's no container for it. It's just it, it it maybe there's some kind of like evaporation or dispersal. I don't know. Yeah. And I kind of I like not knowing. I really feel like I don't. That's a mystery. I, I really respect and want to preserve mysteries like that in a sense. Like I don't I don't want to know. Like without any kind of really solid evidence. Right. Like if somebody's got some evidence and like you know they've got a video on their phone of what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Like I was right. there. I it saw it. It would be a YouTube video yeah, 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 that's what it would be. But I mean... 10 million hits or something. If somebody can, in a very convincing way, explain to me what happens, great. Mm-hmm. But then otherwise, I'm much more comfortable with it being, um, you know, operating at the level of mystery. But who could ever convince you? What could they convince you with? I don't know. A video on YouTube. It's <laughs> <laughs> all it takes for me. I don't know. Just, just, I mean, like right now, my head with it is that there's really no such thing. Like death does not mean annihilation. I've talked about this before on the show, but like matter and energy can't be created or destroyed. That applies to human beings. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a a full annihilation. There's no such thing. Yeah. You know? And so, but I don't know what that, like you say, it's amorphous. I don't know exactly how it manifests. Right. Like reincarnation always feels like a little too neat and clean of a package for it. But I do think there's some principle of reincarnation that I can understand. Like, okay, yeah, maybe that is. It's not like you just jump into the next body or whatever, you know, but I think that, uh, everything's like, everything is one. Mm -hmm. Like I might write a book about this, which would maybe be the worst book ever. No, but it's like, it's a novel or nonfiction. No, nonfiction. Because it's like, it's, it's genuinely a, uh, these are gen- of genuine deep interest to me, and the reason they excite me is that I think they're I think they're fairly observable and provable. Like everything's connected. Everything, like you know, like the tree has sunlight in it and water, and we're made of water. And like, right? Do you know? But I also would want to like talk to science people and make sure I'm not missing something huge and being a complete idiot. But it seems seems fairly obvious we're all connected. Yeah, and in the last, like, 20 or so years, there's been all these studies done about, like, plant consciousness and, I mean, things like that. I feel like we could just be about to trip over something like that. Yeah. You know, an elementary like some huge idea. Uh, elementary particles being um, able to behave as both wave and particle. Yeah. Like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That seems like there's something there. Just a little bit. Let's figure this out. Yeah, t- today, <laughs> today in this garage. We can make it happen. Yeah, if it were going to happen anywhere, it would be here. <laughs> Um, so, okay. So you're in college. You're taking, you mentioned earlier, you took writing classes at Columbia. Yeah. You're in the city. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go, did you ever go crazy? Did you rebel? Did you have a wild period in uh, your adolescence? Oh yeah. You I did. mean, I would say like most of it, you like, did. uh, in high school, I mean, because my mom, you know, she lost her husband. She got really depressed. She was tired. I was the last of five children to begin with. So they oh. were already tired. Yeah. 
And, I, you know, she, she checked out. I mean, she would be the first to admit that. Um, and so I, I had a long leash. Do you know what I mean? Like, there was nobody keeping track. And, yeah. Were you, like, a goth? Did you have, like, that thing going or no? I didn't. I wasn't that into goth. I mean, I liked a lot of the music. Like, I went to go see The Cure and I went to go see Morrissey and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't, like, do the whole black eyeliner okay. type thing. Yeah. Well, maybe black eyeliner, but you know, you know what I'm saying. You didn't like, like you didn't, white pancake you didn't, makeup. Thing. Yeah, you didn't look like the lead singer from The Cure. <laughs> no, no. <not laughs> by purpose. the way, they're back on tour. I know, and I heard that I, a friend of mine saw that show and said it was great. Yeah, my yeah. wife. That was my wife's band when she was in high school. That was like everything to her. Oh, nice. Was she goth? Uh, no, she's from Minnesota. I don't <laughs> even know what dude. Were there goths? There was in like Minnesota? one goth in <laughs> Minneapolis, just holding it down. They're all Swedish and passive aggressive. <laughs> um, so. Okay, so you you did have a wild period. Yeah. Uh, what did it look like? What does, that, mean, what does that mean? A lot of drinking, a lot of pot smoking, um, mushrooms, acid. Okay, all of it. All of it, yeah. I mean, I just, I also, I think naturally I'm a curious experimental person. Like, I will just try something to see what happens. Um, I think regardless of, you know, anything that happened with my dad, I would have probably done these same things. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I would say I, I'm like a, a highly functioning rebel, you know what I mean? Like I, I was able to do all that, but I still got, you know, decent grades and that's kind of how I was. Yeah. I didn't like completely check out. Right. And yeah. did you ever have a, a, a drug experience where you did like feel like you were off the reservation? Like, Oh shit. Like, I hope I can come back. Or was it mostly controlled? No, I was very controlled about it. Like I never did. I never did a lot of anything at once. Yeah. I wasn't like that. I did, that scared me yeah. to do that. And I, I, was knew... al- I was always like, you got to control the dosage. Oh yeah. Like I, I remember knowing these kids in high school that would do like five hits of acid at once. And I was like, no way. Yeah. That's crazy. That's insane. That's how you, you know, like you become a seventies film where you try to jump out the window right. because you're an orange or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the story, isn't it? You know, it's funny how that story, it's like one of those urban legends where I'm, I'm sure it's rooted in truth. Like every, you know, every once in a while, someone really does do that. Right. But it's like one out of a million. Yeah. Everyone else is like, dude. And nobody ever knows that kid directly. No, no exactly. So, um, but was it a, to a mostly positive effect or was it one of those things where you had a wild period and then eventually you're like, God, I'm really hungover and unhappy and I got to stop doing this. Or was it a little bit of both? I mean, I don't regret any of those years or that time at all, but I do think I got to a place and and this did coincide somewhat with finding that psychiatrist where I was like, I'm kind of a mess and I need to figure this out. And, uh, seeing him really helped me understand that a lot of what I was doing was just trying to cover it up, just trying to self-medicate. I mean, the classic pain relief. Yeah. Yeah. Or just like hurt to think about all the things that had happened. And so I would just get drunk and I had a great group of friends who, uh, you know, would buy you alcohol (laughs) (laughs) who were basically like so much fun to drink and do drugs with. But I, after a while it was like, what am I doing? And I mean, I, I had a good job when I was like 23 or so. I was an editor at this, um, alt weekly in Chicago, uh, new city. And so again, like, it was like, I had good things going on. Like I was able to like hold down these jobs and like, but I just, I felt like I, yeah, I would just lose myself on weekends sometimes. And then like, like check out on Friday night, wake up on Sunday morning and be like, yeah. Yeah. And I'd be like, what did I just do? Well, Chicago, we should say it's a big boozy town. People, people drink in Chicago. People drink in a way that I, I don't think I can ever quite 
like communicate it to my LA native friends. What do Los Angeles? Los Angeles doesn't get that fucked up. No, I don't know if it's about the driving thing because that is a big hindrance. I mean, people do. I mean, don't get me wrong. Los Angeles has plenty of substance abuse happening, but right. it doesn't feel. Maybe it's the weather. People are outside. The health consciousness, the vanity. I don't know what it is. There's also not neighborhood bars. Yeah. The bar scene in Chicago is great. Yeah. And when the weather's cold, like, where else are you going to go? Right. Exactly. Like, my sister lives in Chicago, and, like, we'd walk to the bar from her house, which right away was like, oh, this is great. And then you get in there, and there's, like, board games. Yeah. And it's, like, warm and cozy. Yeah. Everyone's nice. And, like, there's a fire burning. You're like, oh, shit. It's an easy place to hang out and have some (laughs) drinks. For sure. (laughs) They make it easy for you, you know? Um, So... You're there, you're seeing this shrink, you're starting to get your act together, but you have this good job. And like, is, is, I'm I'm imagining since at age 25, you were already lamenting the fact that you didn't have a published novel. Like this was something that was in the cards for you from undergrad. Like you were, you were thinking about writing books even then. Oh yeah. Big time. I mean, Columbia college where I went had a fiction writing program for undergrads, which is crazy and might be the only one, or maybe it's like one of three or something at this point, but at any rate, I was there. And, and is it right in the city? You're right in the Yeah. City? Oh, yeah, wow. right in the South Loop. Okay. Which was super fun as well. Um, and uh, the whole time I was there, I was trying to... I was writing about my dad and those experiences and trying to pull something together. Um, but it never quite like can, like congealed into a novel. Like it, it was like these separate chapters that I just, I mean, partially because I think I was just too young. I, I just didn't have the like discipline yet to like stitch those chapters together into anything whole. Was the writing good? I think so. I mean, I definitely, you know, I got scholarships and awards and things like that at Columbia. Okay. Um, and I was very much encouraged. Like the faculty there, the teachers there are amazing. Uh, a lot of them were really encouraging with the work. Um, and you know, and what about what what you were reading? Like, were there all, like a couple of authors? Like, who are the authors in your pantheon? Well, I'm a huge Margaret Atwood fan. Um, Hamid's Tale. I also really love Don DeLillo's White Noise, which yeah. you know obviously has an influence on Neon Green. And uh, I mean, I would say those two uh, plus Amy Bender as well. I'm a big Amy Bender fan. Um, I just think I love the fact that she's so imaginative but emotionally grounded. Like there are all these concepts in her work that are surreal and playful and trippy, but then there's also this very much real uh, emotional core to it. Characters. Yeah. That's hard to do. Yes, it is. You know, you start to invite the surreal into your work and it can get silly quickly. Yes. So what? what's the trick? Just making sure that you have like really round human feeling characters or I I think so I think really grounding it in emotion for me anyway seems to be the way to do it um that you can have a really um wide open surreal kind of concept that that totally changes the world that you're rendering in the book but if you still have human emotions people can relate to anything they can see themselves in anything in any situation yeah because life can also feel really surreal without there being a spaceship in it yeah you ever think you were, I mean, do you have like any kind of like sense of, uh, you know, alien life forms? Is there something you think about? Well, again, this is another kind of mystery that in a lot of ways I don't want pierced. Like I never want to know. Yeah, I, I really don't want contact. Uh, who knows what no, we'll find? No, I don't, I don't, I do not want to be talked to or visited or probed. Yeah. You know, my, my sense is that if they're coming, they're coming for, for resources. 
they're going to come and suck like suck the water out of the ocean or you know take the oil or what who knows what but who knows? it can't be like oh hey guys I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> hey neighbor <laughs> right right we just came here to borrow a cup of sugar i don't know i don't know i mean did you ever watch uh, since we we're both generation xers did you watch v as a child v yeah visitors remember that no. miniseries oh Oh, no, I'm going to have to look this up. You might have to revisit. Like on, I think I'm sure it's on Netflix. Okay. Like peeling their skin away. They're like lizard aliens, but they like looked human. That sounds familiar. Yeah. I might have watched it and just don't remember. It's really like, campy, but like it had a very big impact on me. And like, I, I, I don't think about this very often, but every once in a while, like I'll be looking up and, I'll, you know, it's usually at night. You see the stars. You're just like, oh, fuck. Like, what the hell is out there? There's What a, is out there? It's infinite. Who kn- I mean, there's lots of stuff out there is the point. Yeah, and we keep discovering other planets and galaxies, and it, it just keeps going on and on and on. And I feel like there probably, yeah, there is alien life out there. There's some, I mean, at least on some side of, like, microbial level or something. Right. I don't know. But I, yeah, it's like I like thinking about it. I'm not necessarily a person who is going to go to, like, Roswell, like, tomorrow or You're something. Not. You're no. not thinking about Area 51. no. That's that stuff is too. It's like it's it's been so pop cultureized that it just feels silly. There's mm. no kind of. I mean, there's a tiny little kernel of like the mystery, the purity of that mystery that I love. But I I, I like much more reading about times, and, and I loved reading about this in the Midwest for my book in particular. Like times where there'd be like some guy driving his delivery truck home and he would see in the air like some kind of like neon green like bolt of lightning and then that would be like it and he'd call and there'd be like 10 other people that happened to call that night like those kinds of instances of of seeing a ufo are are much more interesting and exciting to me there's something uh there's something i mean these these things have happened like there was something that happened outside of phoenix yeah which was you know you watch the video you're like oh shit like this feels relatively compelling and you had a lot of of you know, sort of solid citizens saying, hey, you know, there's something in the sky. Right. They're not fully explained. You know, you know? like they're just sort of left yeah. open. So who knows? It seems, but it's, again, it seems, it seems unlikely to me that aliens would come all the way here and like hover in the sky above a city and then just like evaporate. I mean, unless they're just like checking it out. Like, they're just doing a little dip down, like checking the, oh, these land. people are these people are a mess. Right. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Yeah, right. Let's go back home. This is a shit show. Let's go back to <laughs> Utopia. I mean, because I guess that's a. I mean, that is a considering the technological know-how and the sophistication required to travel the distances that we know you would have to travel. Yeah, um, it's possible that we could be dealing with enlightened beings. Absolutely. That would be nice. Yeah. What if they showed up and they really could teach us things? You know, like they were, we just I felt. I mean, who we knows felt, where we could go? Yeah. We felt good in their presence or like they could mentor us on, you know, how to not destroy ourselves. Yeah. I mean, one of the uh, institutions that I love reading about, especially in researching this book was SETI. Do you know about them? No. A search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Okay. And they are a legit organization. I mean, they're really amazing scientists working there. Well, no. Hillary Clinton has said on the record that if she wins, she's going to open up the Area 51 classified documents. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, there was like a little sidebar, like page 14 of the New York Times or something like that not too long ago, where like the uh, SETI community, I'm sure, is tuned into this. But yeah. pe- people who are into outer space and extraterrestrial life forms are excited about a Hillary Clinton presidency for that very reason. Like, she is sympathetic, as is, um, oh, God, what's his name? John Podesta. 
who is like one of her, you know, uh, chief uh, strategists or whatever on her campaign. And he's also like deep into the uh, alien thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. If only Bernie like tapped into that <laughs> voter market. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Bernie, you lost an opportunity. I feel like they definitely would have gone his way if he yeah. just could have shouted about aliens a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you yeah, know, that's fascinating. I mean, and I think uh, it's one of those things that, you know, sort of similar to being grateful for like very obvious everyday things that you sort of take for granted. Um, outer space, the fact that the, the earth is round and floating and this, you know, you, you just forget about that in the day-to-day, you know, um, you know, mundane day-to-day existence. And it's like when you stop and you go, wait a minute, this is a really freaky thing that's happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite things to do to myself sometimes is just to give myself a shock of awe by thinking, oh, I'm just this, like one little pea running around on this giant planet trapped in this giant galaxy. I mean, it's just like when you start to like pull out like that, you yeah. know, it's, yeah. Where, where, where are you on the, uh, that this is all a computer simulation? We're just part of somebody's program. Is that convincing to you at all? <laughs> like kind of the matrix? Yeah. Like speaking of like transitioning from analog to digital, like is this some sort of, uh, you know, are we in some sort of matrix? Is there somebody with like a joystick, you know? I mean, sometimes it feels that way. Like, I, I mean, I would have no idea, right? Yeah. I mean, if this garage burns down in about 10 minutes, <laughs> then then everyone will know. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know. How did we get, we got into some weird stuff here. We're like into <laughs> aliens and outer space and the matrix somehow. But your book does, you know, touch upon this. Yeah. So um, what happened in the, let's say, 15 years between your crisis of confidence at age 25, uh, not having, you know, your your master work done, and then now at age 40 having this book in print? Um, You were, you know, you were working as a journalist. Mm -hmm. How many novels in the drawer were there? How many false starts? Well, I went to CalArts for grad school, and while I was there, I worked on a book that I did actually pillage a little bit from um, and used in neon green, but very little, and it got, you know, churned through that book. But at any rate, I wrote something there and was really excited about it, but I got out of school and tried to finish it for the next year, and I got to this place where I was like, I just will never be able to match the book in my head at all, like not even get close. I mean, you never get a total match, but you get close, and you're like, okay. But I couldn't get close, and I decided to just shelve it. I just got to a point where I knew I knew I just needed to start something new. Was it traumatic? You know, I was ready to give up on it by that time. Uh, like, good riddance. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I was just definitely like, okay, I ran amok in this thing for years. I learned a lot. I'm still proud of certain parts of it. And yeah, just to put it down and be like, okay. I mean, I love starting things. Like, I really like the fresh, new feeling of uh, new projects, new ideas. All the possibilities feel open. It's not daunting. It's not like, oh, shit, I have, you know, nothing but blank space. No. For some reason, I get way more excited. The middle part, to me, is really difficult. That is, like, the muddy middle of, like, oh, like have I made the right choices and should I have actually taken a left here when I took a right? Like that, all that will really bum me out in the middle. But like the beginning to me feels super exciting. Well, and it's also, it's, it's interesting because sometimes I think writers who are successful, uh, one of their virtues is knowing what not to publish and knowing when to put something down. 
Yeah. Whereas writers who might have a harder time or who might wind up publishing something that they wish they hadn't, they might try to muscle it. You know, they might mm. say, no, I'm going to, I've done this much. I'm not going to let it go. And sometimes it's wise to just, to recognize and, and to put it aside. Yeah. I think there are certain works that we start and sometimes they're whole books. And of course that's painful to put one away, but they are transitional. Like you are meant to go somewhere else or you're meant to take the work you did there and apply it to something else. So, but how do you know? Because the, the, the argument that I would have with myself and I'm sure a lot of people would have is like, I don't want to be a quitter. Yeah. I don't want to quit. You know, I don't want to give up on this thing. I've put too much into it. So what's the, what's the dividing line between the wisdom of knowing it's best to put it aside and then also, uh, the quitting thing. I think when you have months and months of feeling just the cold dead fish feeling inside about it, where you're not excited at all, like, and it's not even like you hate it because that's, that's another thing. Like when you hate it and you're feeling really angsty about it that's at least an emotion that's at least like something you can work with and go okay well why do i hate this like what is it about it that's really striking a nerve for me but when you just feel nothing about it for months and months which was yeah. basically what happened to that book time, I, to, time to break up yeah yeah it's, there's it's nothing not there. there the romance is gone the romance is gone the hate is gone it's you not, got nothing it's not you it's me <laughs> Uh, so where is that? Is it in a drawer or is it on a disc? Yeah, it's on a drawer. Uh, well, disc. You didn't do anything melodramatic <laughs> and like light it on fire. Like vi- no. Viking funeral. Oh, wow. No. no. that I'm, I'm seeing a visual that would be pretty cool for that, but no. Yeah. I just, you know, it's like in some file on my computer still. Uh-huh. You won't ever go back into it? Mm, no, because it's just, I wouldn't choose the same stuff to write about now. You know, like it's... I mean, like I said, there's still parts of it that I like and am proud of, but like as an overall book and idea, I just don't feel connected to it now. Okay. And so Neon Green took five years to write. About, And yeah. this was in the aftermath of that. So you let that book go and then you started Neon Green? I let that book go and then there was probably a year or two, well, it's hard to remember now, but like year two, three, I can't remember, remember quite, but I worked on a lot of short stories and... Um, Did you publish them? A couple, a few of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think I started to focus a lot more on journalism. I just needed to get that into a more secure place. And I got the job at the LA Times about a year or so after I, gra- I graduated from CalArts. So being there, I felt like, okay, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I've got to make this happen. So I worked really, really hard there for the first two, three years. I mean, I worked hard the whole time, but you know, in the beginning I was really motivated to make my stamp. Were you uh, like interviewing musicians and doing that kind of stuff or just concert reviews or what was it? Yeah. Concert reviews, uh, profiles. Who did you profile? Um, God, I talked to a lot of different people. I mean, one of the most entertaining interviews I ever did was Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy. <laughs> Just because he was like almost unintelligible. Like yeah, I could yeah. barely make out anything he was saying. And, you know, he talked about, he like, he bragged about drunk driving for like <laughs> 20 years of his life. And now he doesn't drive because, you know, I mean, he's just a, he's just a ridiculous character. Um, I, you know, I, I like Black Sabbath, but I'm not like a huge fan or anything. So I, I wasn't. I wasn't super invested on in this as a fan. I was just more totally entertained by him as a character. So what about somebody, like, was there a rock or a musician that you are a huge fan of that you found yourself talking to face-to-face? Um, I'm trying to remember. You know, so many of the big musicians that, well, Nick Cave 
That's one. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big Nick Cave fan, and I, I interviewed him probably two or three times uh, for various different works. Um, and it makes it harder when you care, doesn't yeah, it? When you all, have like a personal, like, oh, I mean, it's exciting too, but it's also yeah. like, oh, shit, you know, like, I don't want to screw this up, or I, I feel that way. Like, I can feel like more invested or uh, more, um, I don't know, I get more worried. You know, I get a little a little more nervous right before, but then I'm I'm really thrilled to be talking to them, and I think just the joy of it takes over. P.J. Harvey was another person that I was a huge fan of and got to interview a couple times. And what's she up to? I mean, and, and by the way, this is no commentary on her. It's on me being like completely removed from culture. <laughs> yeah, um, I think she came out with an album sometime in this last year. See? I think, yeah. but I'm not sure. She's actually got the number one album on the planet right now. I would have no idea, but uh, really. I, <laughs> Is this know, because kids? Yeah, and just, I don't know. It's nothing I'm proud of, you know, but it's like I was very in my 20s, and I, I don't think it's that uncommon of an experience, but like right. I was that guy, and once again, to touch upon like our generational thing, like I was in the record store like on a weekly basis, like like sifting through the used, I used to sift through used CD bins and just love to find like huh. gold, you know, oh, like, yeah. it was so fun to me. You could walk out of there after you spend 50 bucks and get like, a, you know, 75 albums or whatever it was. And, um, I used to do that all the time. I knew everything. Would and, you be there on Tuesday? Like release day? Like, cause no, you know, not, Tuesdays like, like records. No, not that hardcore. Come out. I just had one that was in, you know, within, um, you know, uh, walking distance or biking distance from my house. And I would just go over there just to kill time. Yeah. And I would bring music home. And then, I think that, frankly, you know, the digitalization of music where you start to get things piecemeal, song by song, sort of fuck things up. I used to buy albums. I used to listen to albums. And then you just start to buy tracks. And then it gets hard to, like, keep track of them. Right. Because, like, your computer dies or you lose your hard drive. And then it's like now you're streaming and it's just, I don't know. I, something's been lost. Both my husband and I have all these CDs, and he has a lot of records, uh, and we don't even know what to do with them anymore. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. like, now if you want to hear a song, it's like I just go on to Spotify or right. one of these things yeah. and listen to it. And, that's, like, and that's, there's a convenient aspect to it. And I, you know, part of it is just find the album, play the album, quit complaining. I could do that now because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on Apple Music, but same thing, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas like before I was buying music and it just got too scattered. I know. And you know, back in the day I used to be like reading the lyrics and the liner notes and like studying them and listening to the whole album as like a piece and like trying to sort out what the, like, the full message was. And is that just about time though too? Like you probably just don't have the time no, to do exactly. that. It's that too. It's yeah. that too. But it's like these, these things have sort of conspired to make me not know what PJ Harvey is up to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And like, I lament that, you know, and maybe I'll get back around to it. But, uh, no, I guess if you're working as a journalist in that realm, you probably had your finger on the pulse better than most. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at the time that I was there, I mean, I knew everything that was coming out all the time, especially because at, at one point I was in charge of the album review section. So like every week I was combing through and just seeing what's coming out. And, but that gets tiring. That yeah. gets tiring in this way where like, if you listen to an album that came out two years ago, you feel like you're not listening to the contemporary thing. Like you can't have like a normal experience of being like, well, I just want to hear that old Pixies record or whatever. Right. Well, and it's like, I feel this way with books because I get sent everything practically. Oh, it, yeah. it feels that way. It's overwhelming and it makes me feel like, oh shit. Like I just, I can't consume all this. Like no. this, you're just missing stuff. And it's like this, it's like a fire hose, you know, yeah. of books. And then it's like, 
well, where does my little book going to fit into the world? <laughs> you know, I like, know. There's so many books. It's crazy. And I, I guess that's a great thing in a lot of ways. You know, people are writing books. They're making art. Like, who's to denigrate that? But it is weird when you publish a book and you have this feeling of it being both a very unique, you know, precious commodity and at the same time being completely disposable, oh. given that there are just tons of books turned out every year. I mean, it's a wrenching process to write a book. The length, the amount of time, the thanklessness, the lost wages, the, <laughs> you know, but I mean, it really takes, it takes that, you know, for most people anyway. And uh, the overwhelming majority of them come out and it's like, meh. You know, like, right. there's like 500 people and you know what? 500 people. That's great. If 500 people read the thing and love it, that's n no small feat. But in the realm of, uh, the marketplace, you it's know, just it, a little drop in the bucket, it's a little drop in the bucket. I mean, I just read something the other day about like literary novels and that like, if you sell 2000, that's like, that's like good. That is, that is like, you're minted. That's fine. <laughs> and to me that feels like what? 2000. <laughs> I mean, okay, great. But I think that's how my, I think the average person feels that way. Maybe people in publishing or maybe, you know, a certain subset of writers would feel excited about that number. But like you talk to the average person and you say, oh, you know, my book made the uh, San Francisco Chronicle bestseller list. Like they think that means hundreds of thousands of copies. Oh, of I sold. know. I know. I don't and think people, like, most it's people. It's probably like 6,000. Not know, even. Some bestseller list. Not even. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, I think that's. That's part of the uh, illusion or some sort of confusion that most people have about it. It's it's much harder for books. Mm -hmm. uh, but then again, it's super hard for musicians now, too. I'm sure you ran into that. Oh, yeah. Like I mean, all I'll... these albums being made and dropped online. I mean, how many people are listening to those and buying those? Well, a lot of the bands that I talked to in that period of time between, you know, 2005 to about 2012, like they make their living touring and touring is exhausting. I mean, yeah. to do that all the time is is psychologically difficult, spiritually difficult, mentally difficult. I mean, you don't, you can't really have a family. You can't. What's have up with What's up with roots. the bands? But like, the, this is the thing because like uh, I always talk about this in this show. So I'm, I'm blushing as I say it, but I, I'm a Grateful Dead fan. Not a, Are not you? A, I'm not ashamed to admit it. No, that's cool. Um, and the but the life of these bands that live on the road, I find it's there's something noble about going out and kind of plying your trade. Yeah. Playing live in front of people, mastering your instrument, not being like like an old troubadour. Yeah, like way. not being cocooned in the studio. Um, but you know the the point that I guess I want to make is has less to do with the art part of it and more to do with the business part of it and the irony of that band and bands like it is that they sort of prefigure the internet and the, the economic model of the music business now, mm. like, because for all of the difficulty that there is in terms of trying to sell records, uh, and make a living doing that, if you can go play and you're willing to subject yourself to living in a van and, and if you can build a community around your art and build a platform, which is what they tell writers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, you don't the platform. Yeah, you don't need you don't need the big record labels. You just if people will come out and see you play live. You can make a really good living, independent of all that. And I think that, you know, that model was sort of created, you know, back in the '60s without any idea that it would ever come to this, but it, it wound up sort of prefiguring it. Yeah, and it's interesting to look at the people who are big enough to do this, like Radiohead or Beyonce. They can just drop an album, Drake, you know, drop an al album by surprise. I mean, it's getting very plotted at this point, yeah, but yeah. drop it by surprise and then, you know, pick your price, all those kinds of things where you can just basically work with your huge fan base and get them to buy it 
what when they want at what price they want and you're still going to make a great living because and you're pay, on top. and pay 250 or 300 dollars a ticket to go see your concert or whatever it is right and, you know i mean they it, it's like rare air you know that you have these musicians like you say beyonce radiohead there's just a small handful in yeah. the grand scheme of things who have that luxury yeah and good for them but for everyone else it's like what are you going to do you got to go play live so how deep is your dead fandom like do you have like a bunch of like dicks pics tapes and stuff <laughs> no it's not I, you know it's not like that i think it's an i mean i think a lot of it is nostalgia i think it was the soundtrack of my life when i was sort of like um having a lot of fun and like rethinking a lot of things that period in your life so it's just it's connected to that but then i also really like it yeah and i also have like a ton of respect for them as artists yeah i love what they did the iconography around it like it bums me out that people uh, dog them because their fa- some of their fans were stupid hippies. Right. That misses the whole point. They did everything. They didn't go corporate. They didn't sell out. They built their own thing by hand. They were good to their fans. They gave their music away. Um, they happened to, you know, people have like massive transformative experiences in their audience. Like that's everything you want from an artist. They were crazy. You know. Like, I think there's this idea too that, that because they're a jam band, that there's like no discipline or no, no order to the music, that it's just chaos. And it's like, no, no, no. Those songs are actually pretty tightly structured to let there be chaos at a certain jazz. point in it. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's also too, like, I think it's lyrically um, on the par with Bob Dylan. Like, I think Robert Hunter's lyrics are really fucking good and like, <sighs> don't get their due. You know, I might, I might part ways with you on that one. <laughs> I do. I'm telling you. Like, I uh, mean, as much as I like Box of Rain, yeah. I just, I don't know if it's the same as... Uh, I'm, now I'm really dripping sweat because I, I feel bad even talking about this. I've had this conversation on the show before, but I am a, an evangelist for it because I, I think that it's misunderstood and it bothers me. Yeah. Some people would disagree. Um, I respect that. But that's cool to hear from somebody who's a music journalist because I feel like music journalists, like it, it can lend itself to uh, snobbery because you, oh, you, yeah. know, you know everything, you've heard everything... It's like if it's not some band nobody's heard of that has 300 fans in like, you know, you know, Liechtenstein or something, then... You're talking about like my least favorite aspect of music journalism, that kind of like one-upsmanship and right. do you know about that and do you have that album and that kind of... I don't know. I just... It doesn't ever... It doesn't feel joyful to me when people get into those kinds of conversations. No. When you reduce art to cultural currency or right. um, social currency... Where yeah. it's like how many competitive show- subcultural yes. currency? How many shows have you seen? How many albums? You know, it's like all that kind of stuff. It's like okay, this has just become something else. Yeah, I don't like that either. Mm-mm. Did you uh, run up against a lot of that? You know, when you're around other journalists, or was that the, was that the norm, or was that the exception to the rule? Well, I was the only woman on the staff. Uh, it was like five or six guys, and a lot of those guys I really love, but they, you know, it can be a little hard being in that environment, you know, like you're... Um, as as the only woman or just yeah. in general? Uh, I think in general, but particularly for female music journalists, I have a lot of respect for female music journalists in particular, because I think uh, a lot of times, I mean, this never happened to me, but I I know it's happened to many colleagues, like you're mistaken for a groupie or um, you're interviewing a band and the... What what do you mean you're mistaken for a groupie? Like you go backstage to interview them and the guy's just like, how's it going? You're here for the... Yeah, yeah. Really? Like, I have known that to happen to, like, plenty of colleagues, you Wait, know? Like, so to what degree? Like, these people are, like, just getting undressed? Or, like, what are they... No, just more like, like, 
this kind of surprise when when the journalists will say, "Well, no, I'm here from LA Times or whatever," and they're like, "Oh, you are? Oh, oh okay. <laughs> you're not you're not here with like this band of people that wants to party. Oh, okay." Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of times I think too, you get tested a little bit more. Like the uh, journal, or sorry, the band that you're talking to. Um, I mean, this depends. You can also because you're a woman coming in, and, and maybe particularly when you're talking to a group of guys. Um, they feel safer with a woman. And so they're willing to say things that they might not to a guy because there's a kind of competitive guy-to-guy feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can work in your advantage, but it can also work to your disadvantage when a guy is kind of like testing you, like, what do you really know, little girl, kind mm-hmm. of feeling. Um, well, and there's there's also, like, the it, it's not always the case, but it is often the case, it seems, with this, like, the lead singer the rock and roll like the successful rock and roll band it's a it's a it can be a very powerful form of egotism and self-regard like the the fashion element of it how they look yeah like it's very considered i've always been like i don't even know how you do that but like all these guys they have like a style they're thinking about their clothes they're thinking about their hair their voice how they look they're in front of and 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 i get to a degree why they would because they're on stage in front of people Mm -hmm. but yet another reason why i like the dead they looked horrible. <laughs> they looked like complete They didn't slobs give a shit. All the time. Exactly. So, but I mean, did you find that? Is that a misperception on my part that like, the, the, are the egos that big? Yeah, but they can work in crafty ways, you know, like sometimes it can be a guy who tries to, and I don't, I'm not going to name names, but there can be like a certain type of indie musician who can present himself as the most like sensitive in tune man in the world. And like, that's <laughs> a type care, of, would you care to name names? <laughs> I can't. That's a type of like ego performance, you know, that yeah. happens like where it's just um, you, like, there's some kind of manip- manipulation there. Like they want you to feel like you, they are the most sensitive man in the world and like it feels like a performance was anyone uh, you mentioned nick cave are there any other any, anyone that you've interviewed that you walked away like just feeling like really deeply impressed on a human level like wow that person's that person's uh, in touch with something they've got something to say or they're you know channeling something that's really impressive you know i'm sure if i looked at all the people i interviewed uh Musician-wise, in that time period, I would have some answers for you, but it's gotten foggy in my brain. And yeah. I can answer you in terms of stories I've done more recently, okay. which actually have been more about actors. And okay. I find actors way more easy to interview. Interesting. Yeah, they're they're more articulate about their process. Um, musicians can be tough because they don't necessarily like to. I mean, this is you know, I'm I'm generalizing awfully here, but they don't always like to talk about their work. They don't. They want to just be like, no, just listen to the music, and yeah. that's the answer for you. Well, and it's also it's. It, I would say it's hard to write about music. It's hard to. It, it's something that like sort of eludes language. It's not an easy thing to write about. Yeah. No, it's not. And. Uh, yeah, it is. It is. Sometimes you feel like just by putting it into words, you are dissipating some of the magic of music. It, like when I hear two people talking about a song or an album or like a piece of music, it almost always grates on me. It's very hard. I mean, I used to give myself challenges just to keep it interesting and to keep myself on my toes about it. Like for a long time, I wouldn't allow myself to compare ever. Like I wouldn't say this sounds like the Rolling Stones or, you know, this, this, these Beatles like harmonies or whatever. Like I would just take all of that out. Um, partially because I felt like it was just too easy. It was kind of cheating. 
um, and you have more fun and it's more interesting if you really try to describe what the sound is without comparing it. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's like an easy crutch. Yeah. Um, now, what about actors? You've interviewed some actors that you did come away impressed by? or Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite interviews that I've done in the last few years was, was with Kristen Stewart. Like, I loved K-Stew. her. K-Stew. K-Stew. I, see, I just... I will I just, ride for her always. I just tweeted the other day, she's smart. I like her. Yeah. She's underrated. And because I think she got, you know, she gets pigeonholed with the uh, vampire movies and then like right. the tabloid bullshit. But like underneath it all is like she's got a really good searching mind and good taste. Yes. And connect. You nailed it. I mean, she's very smart. She's very insightful. She really understands. To me, it felt like human emotions and just like a range of experience for someone who's at, at that time was 23. Yeah. Um, partially because she's lived so much life already. Like she's had this insane fame bonanza that's just been encircling her for the last, you know, seven years of her life or whatever, because she was in twilight. Yeah. Um, where did you interview her? I interviewed her at this coffee shop in Echo Park. And one of the things that popped out to me from that interview is I asked her at one point, you know, what, what's the thing you miss most about your pre-fame life? And she said, people watching. I can't people watch. Like the minute I start watching somebody, they, they want to come talk to her. Yeah. So she cannot. We're going to be friends. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. She can't, she can't make like real sustained eye contact with people because then they're like, Oh, Oh, oh that's case do. I'm going to go over there yeah, or she just must want to talk to me. Yeah. Or just, you know, the weirdness of like locking eyes with a stranger and then knowing that you're famous or whatever. Um, so that, that really stood out to me as a really, um, telling thing for someone to miss because it wasn't like she said, Oh, I don't know, like something about being anonymous. It's more than being anonymous. It's like being able to read and watch other people the Which way that prob- she's watched. Well, yeah, exactly. And also that's, that's gotta be a lot of what, uh, it's fuel for an actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be able to observe human beings in their natural habitat. You sort of can't do that when you're famous. No. It's a hindrance. Right. It gets taken away from you. I so mean, the, she... you watch reality television as a substitute. Like, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, really? I don't know. I don't know what she does. Because I was like, do you ever even go to the grocery store yourself? She's like, no, I can't. I really just can't do it. Like, she gets everything online or she sends out an assistant or a friend. I mean, I just feel like that is a really weird way to live. I can't imagine it. Well, you know, but it's weird because, I I mean, she's at a, you know, at a strange level of fame, especially with younger audiences. Mm -hmm. I don't think people my age or your, you know, I don't think 40-year-olds are going to be like mobbing case to. Maybe some of them would. Some of them. Yeah, but I, uh, but I get it, you know, because she's young and you know these uh, Twilight books, or I mean, she's a megastar, right, to a huge section of the world population. So, but I think at a certain point, or I like to think at a certain point, you just got to go out, like fuck it, you know what I'm saying? Like you have to live your life. It gets very dangerous, I think, to be famous and to just decide that you're going to stay inside and order everything online. I think you have to find a way to live your life. Otherwise, it's not going to be healthy for you. Yeah. I mean, I do think she's making the adjustment to just be normal anyway. Like I went, you know, we interviewed at this coffee shop and then afterwards we just shopped around at a few different like little boutiques that are around there. And she... As one does in a celebrity interview. <laughs> right. And she was very... By, by the way, did she, did she, I don't mean to interrupt you, but did <laughs> she like, 
Does she say like, I want a donut? I always feel like the celebrity interview, <laughs> it's like the celebrity makes an, a concerted effort to be like, I'll have the pizza, you know, just to like, right. Be like a real human being. I love food and I like normal food. And you know, I'm always just like eye rolling. Like, I know. No, yeah. I never buy that either. And no, she had like a coffee or something. Like it was very like Normal. boring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but afterwards she was like, oh, there's this boutique I like. Like, well, let's walk down there a couple blocks. And I said, sure. You know, so we did. And she is like on guard the whole time. Like she's she's shopping and picking up objects. But like the store owner's eyes were glued on her every move. Because for one thing, if Kristen Stewart buys your little like ceramic tchotchke that day, like that means that you are going to get a huge wave of sales because like somebody might be photographing it and catching it. Somebody might write about it like me. Were there paparazzi? Um, there wasn't, but I have been in that experience before interviewing people or being around somebody famous where there's paparazzi. I mean, I had this very... Who? I had this really surreal experience. This was before I worked at the LA Times. I was working at this vintage store, um, a vintage clothing store, and Paris Hilton came in. And this was like prime Paris Hilton yeah. fame yeah. period. Like right. this was like 2003 or something like that. By the way, where's she at these days? <laughs> Good question. She must be pissed about Kim Kardashian. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? That yeah. would, Kim Kardashian's just stolen the show. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, she was like shopping in there. And there, I mean, I can't even explain to you, Brad. There was like a charge in the air of people who, there was all these like, there's like 10 young women who came in who obviously were following her. And just were, like, trying to shop near her and kind of see, like, what she was getting. Yeah. And there um, was paparazzi not in the store, but, like, as soon as I stepped out of the store afterwards, they were, like, all around the street. Um, I mean, that's a really weird detail of L.A. life, you know, that happens from time to time. I see it. Yeah. I mean, I see paparazzi on a fairly regular basis. I don't always yeah. know. I, I never know who they're photographing. You just kind of see them, like, hanging outside of a restaurant. So you're like, oh, someone's inside. They're going to get them on their way out. Well, you know, too, when there's like 10 or more that it's like really gold list, you know? Well, and that, what's also interesting and sort of uh, dark and sad is that Paris Hilton probably called those paparazzi. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Honestly, like a lot of them, they either, either they're people or themselves, like they just text and they say, hey, I'm going to be here. They want to be photographed. That's their I currency. I mean, especially her in that time. Yeah. Like she had no problem with these little weird girls yeah, she loved around it. her. Yeah. She loved it. That was like the whole game for her. But then it, eventually it's got to get corrosive and weird and, uh, you I know. So, uh, well, we've discussed, how does Kristen Stewart feel about uh, aliens in outer space? <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring this full circle. I don't know. I should have asked her. I'm, I, I feel like we've, this conversation has taken us to uh, places that I didn't quite expect. <laughs> I feel like she would have been game to discuss. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I want to have her on this show. I hope she I writes think a, you should. I hope she writes a book. She's, she she's, probably will. She seems literary. I mean, she did it on the road. She's, yeah. uh, she did Into the Wild. I feel like that's another thing I like about her is that when you read interviews with her, I've just gleaned a sense that, like, she's paying attention, she's reading. That's a big part of her She life. does. Yeah. We talked about her reading habits. I mean, she's really into the beat poets, which she's 23. Yeah. So, like, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let that go. I mean, I kind of feel like, sure, I does like, she like some the of the beats, Dead? too. But <laughs> <laughs> probably. But, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking she'll get into cooler stuff later. Yeah. She'll come around. Yeah. I have faith in Case, too. Um, well, Margaret, it's such a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, Con thank you, Congratulations Brad. on your novel, and I wish you uh, all the best on whatever comes next. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. All right, guys, there you go. That's Margaret Wappler. Her debut novel is called Neon Green, available now from the unnamed press. You can find Margaret online at margaretwappler.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle is at Margaret Wappler. 
can tweet with her over there. You can also find her on Facebook and on Instagram. You can find her on the internet. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the other people with app, uh, the other people with Brad Listy app. The other people with app. <laughs> Be a person with app. Get app. Put app on phone. Use app. Listen show. It really is the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. Get the fucking app. Jesus. So tired of talking about that app, but I feel like I have to. You can sign up for premium on the app. That's how I monetize the show. If you uh, sign up for premium, you get access to everything, and that's also how you know a great way to support the show. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything. You want all the episodes? You want more than 400 episodes available at your fingertips? 75 cents a month. 75 cents? Three quarters? A month? Are you fucking kidding me? It's incredible. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. So, uh, it's looking like, I, you know, the new garage is going to be great. Very lucky. It's all working out. But, uh, scheduling-wise, I'm trying to time this all. I don't know if you guys have detected this, but I'm trying to get, uh, get all these, uh, refurbishments done, get the garage uh, operational, the new garage, and then, uh, not miss a week of the show in the meantime. I'm trying to juggle those two things. It looks like, uh, the most optimistic estimate is that in the next three weeks, I could potentially be functional in that garage. Like last week of September, I could start recording in-person interviews. That's what I'm hoping. But, I, you know, there's a lot to orchestrate. And, you know, there's also, you never, you never know what's going to happen. Keep your fingers crossed. Please remember, John Updike once referred to literary critics as, quote, pigs at the pastry cart, and that Edmund Wilson once referred to this side of paradise as, quote, one of the most illiterate books of any merit ever published. <laughs> John Updike was a literary critic, wasn't he? Okay, guys, that's it. Thanks to Margaret Wampler. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to my family for their support. Thanks to the fans. Thanks to everybody who uh, wrote to me. I'd like to thank God. Thank you, God. What else, can, what else can I tell you here at the tail end while we wait for this fucking song to finish? God damn it. I guess I could fade the song out. I have that power. But I pride myself in timing these outros so that they end right when the song ends. This is a long song. I'm recording this at night. I'm fatigued. My brain is going soft. You know how many times I've heard this song? <laughs> uh, 430 episodes, you guys. 430. 
Maybe that's not that many. Feels like a lot. And yet, the podcast feels young. All right, goodbye.